I'm Emily Renneberg, and this is Even Strength. Hey, it's June. It's Pride Month. It's Indigenous History Month. It's NHL playoffs. It's Euro Cup. It's Copa America. It's also a new episode. So ever since I started this podcast just over a year ago, I've wanted to do an episode on rugby. Rugby has been around since apparently the 1800s, but the story of its founding is a little bit muddy. It started in England, but the modern version looks nothing like its ancient relative. At this point, there are two main styles of play, rugby league and rugby union. Most people probably think of rugby union when they think of the sport. Interest in rugby union has exploded over the last few years, and both the participants and the fans have grown exponentially all over the globe. And you may be asking the question, well, where are we seeing a lot of this huge rugby growth? It's only been around for 200 plus years. Well, it's the women. From 2018 to 2019, interest has grown by over 45% in established women's rugby markets, and 27% in emerging spaces. Female rugby fans grew 29% in that same year and boast numbers in the three-digit millions. In 2019, rugby had more fan growth than soccer, basketball, tennis, motorsport, and golf. It's moving fast, and Canada is kind of keeping up. Our women's union team is currently ranked third in the world and won silver at the prestigious World Cup in 2014. The men's national union team is currently ranked 23rd, and they hit the quarterfinals in the World Cup of 1991. Rugby union, as a sport, has only seen four Olympics in the years 1900, 1908, 1920, and 1924. And that was just for the men. However, you're probably thinking, rugby is in the Olympics. I've seen it. And yes, you'd be right. But if you've seen Olympic rugby, you've seen something called Rugby Sevens, which made its Olympic debut in 2016. It's a variant of Rugby Union, and this time they even brought in a women's competition, which is actually very good news for our red and white team because the women won the very first Olympic bronze in 2016 and are being looked at very favorably for the upcoming games in Tokyo. So if you've kept up to this point, thank you. I know I've thrown a lot at you. The theme of this episode is learning. My goal for this one is that by the end, you pick up some solid new knowledge. So naturally, I'm excited to welcome our guest today who, among many, many accomplishments, has represented Canada with one of our national teams in the Canada Ravens Rugby League, was a 2018 Ontario University Athletics Women's Rugby All-Star, and currently coaches for the University of Waterloo. They're also currently working on their master's in global governance at Waterloo. Plus, they're an incredible activist with a story that they were so kind enough to share with us today. Hi, my name is Ben Skinner and I'm a post-colonial queer activist. My activism is inspired by my cultural heritage, which is a complex mix of Filipino, Mi'kmaq, and British settler culture. I'm currently studying global governance at the Balsillie School of International Affairs, where I'm researching the intertwinement between the gender binary system and 2S LGBTQIA plus forced migration. 
I am also a trans non-binary elite level rugby athlete, and I was the first openly transgender rugby athlete to represent the Canada Ravens National Rugby League program overseas. I am currently the defense coach for the University of Waterloo women's varsity rugby team, I sit on the Ontario Rugby League board, and I volunteer coaching youth sports at a variety of levels. I hope you caught all of that. I told Ben that only they'd be able to pack that much information into 45 seconds, and they credited academia for that skill. I told you folks this one was going to be full of learning. Ben goes by they, he, and I go by she, her. They started playing rugby back in high school when a friend was looking for a friend. I was actually really, really horrible at rugby when I first when I first started. I was 14. I had just started grade nine at a high school that was brand new. And there was an individual. She sat beside me in math in homeroom. And she was kind of talking about how she wanted to go out for the rugby team. But she didn't really want to go without anybody. Like she wanted a friend, I guess. And um, I didn't have any friends. So I was like, yeah, like, I can run and catch a ball. You know, I've been playing basketball. I've been playing hockey. Um, I agreed to go with her to tryouts. And I'm not even going to lie, I was horrible. I really kind of start to get it really into it in grade 10. I came back because I really liked the community of people that I had met. I made some friends at this new high school. So I decided to give it another go in grade 10. And I was a little bit better, which is good. And I started playing club rugby from there. I really enjoyed my grade 11 and 12 year. And then I played for the University of Waterloo in my undergraduate. So if you've listened to our episodes before, you'll know we like to encourage, most importantly, kindness and openness. Ben and I talk about a lot of fantastic things, rugby related and not. And I'm going to jump in and explain a few terms that may be new to some. And that's great. I'd also like to encourage doing your own research if you're unsure about something, even if it's rugby related, because there's probably some of that in here too. Again, kindness and openness are a great place to start. So I am really proud to say that I am officially the first uh, openly transgender rugby athlete to compete overseas for the Canada Ravens National Rugby League program. I was actually a little bit afraid when I was getting ready to go and, you know, starting to talk about it a bit more publicly and stuff. So in my last year of playing varsity at the University of Waterloo, that was when I guess it was my second last year, actually, I I started to really contemplate what I wanted to do in terms of my gender, because I had been experiencing gender dysphoria um, as a non-binary person for a little bit. You know, I kind of wanted to dive a bit deeper into that because it was starting to take a toll on my mental health. It wasn't until my final years I started to look into, can I still play rugby if I'm trans and if I'm non-binary and what are, you know, what are the rules surrounding that? I was a little bit nervous, but I ended up, you know, coming out and my, I had a meeting with my athletics department at the school and with my coaching staff. They actually ended up reassuring me that it was, it was okay for me to be who I am and, and still continue my rugby career. And it was shortly after that, that actually the youth sports governing body did come out with their trans inclusion policy, which it is an ultimate inclusion policy. So essentially athletes can compete on the side of whatever team that they identify with the most. I think that's what really gave me the confidence to go play overseas in Serbia. At least, at the very least, the Canadian rugby community had my back in that respect, not just socially, but also politically. I got a lot of hate on social media from being tagged in photos in Serbia, 
um, competing as a transgender athlete. It was most, I didn't, I didn't have any negative experiences in person. What I learned was that I can't let that stop me from representing for all the people that are, that are watching me in a positive light. So Ben is a transgender non-binary athlete. Maybe you're curious about what that means. The power of language is incredible in shaping our perceptions of people and otherwise. The important thing to understand about language as it relates to gender and sexuality is that it can have a significant impact on individuals, on groups, and it changes a lot over time. Vocabulary evolves and is evolving right now. So good practice is again to use kindness, ask people what language they'd like you to use when talking with or about them, and stick to that ask. Language always has personal meaning. I take a little bit more of an indigenous uh, mindset when, I, when I'm thinking about gender uh, in terms of my like family heritage. Like we have Mi'kmaq blood from Newfoundland. So we acknowledge gender in a way that's a little bit more fluid. And then on top of that, my mom's actually from the Philippines. And the Filipino conceptualization of gender is also very fluid. And it's not necessarily pinned to the identity of a person so strongly as it is in in terms of our kind of more North American, more Western conceptualization of gender. It's more so as if gender is conceptualized as a presentation um, that is fluid and can be fluid. Being trans non-binary means that I add the trans part in there because I want to emphasize that I am not the gender that I was assigned at birth. Because I was assigned female, girl, woman at birth, and I am none of those things. So gender tends to be for me almost more of, I take an energy that exists in my being, and then I, I display it for people to see. Being a non-binary person to me means that, you know, people, so the phrase even gender is a spectrum. We can say that gender is a spectrum, but let's pretend that we have the gender spectrum with male on one side and female on the other side, and then there's a slider in the middle. You could be anywhere on that spectrum. But then there's also that spectrum is like floating in space, and there's a bunch of other gender options floating around it that aren't even related to being male and female. They can be both, they can be neither, they can be essentially conceptually whatever you decide because it's your identity. It's really hard, I think, for people to break out of the binary conceptualization of gender. And it's hard for people to imagine what gender can look like outside of man and woman, but it's possible. And non-binary people are, are living proof of that. People who knew me growing up, as soon as I came out as non-binary and described myself as that, it made sense. And I have trouble describing that to people other than saying it's, it's try to think of it almost like an energy or an aura that, you, that a being has. I know it sounds kind of spiritual, but for me, it is kind of spiritual. When we talk about the gender binary, we're talking about the disproven but still widespread assumption that there are two genders and that gender is something biologically determined. Rejecting the binary is absolutely not a new concept. It's something we've seen in cultures globally since the beginning of human time. We know this from both written and oral tradition and physical evidence. Ben talked about the Philippines and indigenous culture as just a couple examples. One of the most obvious places in North America that the binary continues to exist in is sports. Men's hockey, women's hockey, women's basketball, men's basketball. 
women's soccer, men's soccer. And because of this thinking, a lot of people are oftentimes forced to conform, are left behind, or are even prohibited from participating in athletics. In late 2020, World Rugby banned the participation of trans women from international women's competition and stated it was necessary to prevent injuries on the women's team. In doing so, World Rugby essentially weaponized fairness in sport to violate the human rights of trans women. And listen, I am well aware of current and disturbing debates in the U.S. and globally making headlines about laws banning trans athletes from sports. But we are not here to talk about something that shouldn't even need a discussion. Trans people belong in sports. The governing body of university athletics in Canada, U-Sports, announced their ultimate inclusion trans athlete policy in September of 2018, which allowed all athletes to choose which team they wanted to compete on, regardless of their gender. It took effect immediately for all 56 of their member institutions, including Ben's University of Waterloo rugby team. The World Rugby approval of a, of a blanket transgender ban, well, ban on transgender women specifically, that's devastating for me. If I were to contrast that with the U Sports complete inclusion policy, since that policy came out, there's not been a single issue. Basically, the justification was safety and fairness for women's sport, protecting women's sport was, is essentially an angle that's very much used to mobilize these anti-trans sentiments in, in athletics. In youth sports, we've not seen an increase in injuries in women's sports. We've not seen a domination of transgender woman athletes in women's sports. There's been none of those negative repercussions that are being used to justify this almost alarmist sentiment behind protecting women's sports and therefore banning transgender women. It's, it's, I think that's something that the world is not ready to even test out. Rugby has become increasingly popular in communities in New Zealand, Australia, and other Pacific Islands. In 2011, 20% of the World Cup players were of Pacific Island descent, 120 players. In many Pacific Island cultures, there have always been more than two male-female genders. New Zealand was one of the first modern governments to officially identify those who aren't male or female and recognize a third category of gender-diverse people on legal documentation. Rugby is an interesting sport because it's played so much in the Pacific Islands, and one of the big things about that ban on transgender women was the fact that a lot of rugby players in the Pacific Islands are Indigenous people and they recognize other genders openly and their governments actually, like government of New Zealand, op like openly recognizes a wide spectrum of genders because of the Maori people. If we're going to start really heavily like ingraining this binary to the point where it's not, it's not going to be inclusive to transgender women, what does that mean for all of the communities and all of the athletes whose gender is literally not in the binary and whose communities recognize that, have fostered that, have cultivated that. That was a big question. For me, ultimate inclusion is the only thing that really does make sense. Something that Ben said really struck me when we were talking about gender. I want to share that with all of you and ask that you really let this one soak in. There's, there's such a stigma against transgender individuals, and a lot of it comes back to binary thinking of masculine and feminine, or male and female. And it's just an outdated way of thinking about gender and sex. 
it doesn't allow for the range of human experiences that actually exists. Something that I like to say to people when I have this discussion is you look at women across the board from if we look all over the world, women come in all shape, all sizes, all strengths, all abilities, all different kinds of body parts, even, you know, different biologies, different chromosomes, there's a, a range. But what do all of those women have in common? It's that they identify as women. If we actually think about it philosophically, that is the only single thing that we can say every single woman across the board in the world, that's what they have in common beyond anything else. And so I think that that's something we, we really have to take into consideration when we're talking about inclusion in sport. I have a hard time grappling with the use of fear of the unknown to bar a group of people based on their identity from something that's so beneficial. And I think that's the most heartbreaking thing is there is so much benefit to sport. There's so many gains to be made and from participating in organized sport and in informal sport as well, but in organized sports specifically and in, in athletics, it's, it's really unfortunate that people are willing to take that away from a group of people who want and need nothing more than to be included. Ringette Canada released their updated trans inclusion policy on June 16th, 2021. The new policy is one of ultimate inclusion. Athletes can choose which team they feel comfortable competing with, regardless of their gender, similar to youth sports. With ringette being a sport with primarily female participants, the new policy announcement highlights a very serious and very real experience of Robin, a transgender male athlete. At age 13, Robin came out as trans, and under the previous ringette Canada policy, Robin was required to play on a boys' team to align with his gender identity. There were no male ringette programs available to him, and he was forced to leave the sport he loved. Ultimate inclusion policies allow youth to stay in sport. Youth sport dropout rates are something sports organizations across the country are trying to combat, and being inclusive is an important piece of this. As a trans non-binary person, it can be tricky sometimes. You know, I've had times where I've kind of questioned, especially on days where I'm feeling more masculine, had a moment of, should I be playing men's rugby? Is it fair, quote unquote, fair that I'm here? And then I have to kind of, you know, give myself a little bit of a tap on the nose because of course it's fair that I'm playing women's rugby because that's where I feel comfortable and that's where I feel safe and that's where I like to play. And on top of that, me being a little bit of a more masculine figure in terms of my presentation in no way adds to my athletic ability and in no way puts me above a lot like the athletes that I'm playing against. There are times where I kind of, I get a little bit in my head about what space I'm supposed to take up. And then I have to remind myself that I deserve to take up space where I want to take up space. For many people, gender and sexuality outside of what we've been taught can be difficult to think about. That doesn't mean it isn't important. In colonized society, we're taught that being heterosexual and cisgender are the defaults. And this kind of thinking is incredibly limiting and damaging to people who aren't heterosexual and cisgender. People such as myself are almost always, there's an expectation for me to describe my experience in a way that someone else who is within the binary and who is cis is really hard. Like it's kind of like if I was to try and describe a chair to you, but with the reference of an orange. I like that you mentioned the word default. You use the word default because there's this misconception from most people in the world that this binary thinking is default. It was and slash is the default. 
what people don't understand is that prior to colonization, it was never the default. So our gender system right now is the binary system. That's the way that we've been taught. The indigenous groups of Turtle Island, they always, since time immemorial, according to oral histories and oral traditions, they have always recognized gender and experienced gender in a non-binary fashion. It's a really beautiful, free and fluid conceptualization. And it's really hard for people to wrap their heads around because this default of binary has been so deeply ingrained. As you heard in Ben's intro, part of their history is Mi'kmaq. It's funny, I actually was a little bit disconnected from my, uh, from my Indigenous background growing up. So in Newfoundland, there is a very uh, strong sentiment of shame surrounding the Indigenous identity in Newfoundland for a long time. And that kind of trickled down throughout generations, of course, uh, to my father. So, you know, he, t- he taught us a lot of traditional knowledge, actually, which is, is funny, but never framed it as part of his Indigenous culture until later on, until actually quite recently. And I've become more connected with the culture through refining that pathway and finding members of my family who are from, you know, that kind of lost past. It's funny because I actually don't normally identify myself as a two-spirit person, specifically to to people who are not Indigenous. Um, and that's kind of because I grew up in white or just Canadian, you know, Canadian society. And the two-spirit conceptualization of gender and sexuality was never something that I was actually taught or given the conceptualization for. You know, the language that I use to describe it is is a lot uh, based on that. So I don't normally identify myself as a two-spirit person unless it's to other Indigenous people. But that's because I know that in their conceptualization of my being, it makes sense that I'm a two-spirit person. To understand more about the term two-spirit, I went to the two-spirited people of Manitoba archives for explanation of the term. The term two-spirit was introduced at the third annual International LGBT Native American Gathering in 1990. Elder Mira Laramie shared the name and it was quickly adopted as a spirit name. Today, Two-spirit is a term chosen by some Indigenous people to describe an aspect of their identity. Not all LGBTQ plus Indigenous folks are 2S, but it is a term strictly for those who are Indigenous. Other terms have roots in colonialism and are oftentimes difficult or painful to adopt because of this. Residential schools also violently enforce heteronormativity and the gender binary. There is a long history and deep nuance behind this term, as there are hundreds of Indigenous cultures in North America alone who all have different language for and relationships with gender and sexuality. It can't all be encompassed within a single definition or term, so two-spirit is used as an umbrella term, and it's important for education and starting dialogue. Shanice Ndobu Steele is an Afro-Indigenous activist who works to educate racialized and Indigenous people on their shared histories. In her blog, she talks about her experience in trying to trace queer Anishinaabeg language with knowledge keeper Caleb Musgrave. Quote, He had no such term. Caleb explained to me that sexuality wasn't of importance to us as Anishinaabeg, not like it is now or in colonial Eurocentric societies. We had many discussions about how language wasn't gendered, and he explained to me that terms that seemed binary actually had to do more with one's roles and characteristics than it did with what was between their legs. Unquote. So all of this is to say that the term two-spirit is incredibly complex and, again, serves as an umbrella term and is only available to those who are Indigenous. Now, 
on this podcast, we also like to celebrate joy. And Ben has found that in being able to coach rugby. They really look forward to resuming in-person sports and working directly with young athletes again. The best thing about coaching is being able to interact with these young people and first of all, see how brilliant they are. And I think kids are incredible. The kids that I've coached, man, they are so incredible. Yes, you know, they're like they're kids. So they act up or they get frustrated or they get tired and whiny or whatever. But I see these kids interact with each other. And we have an athlete, for example, who introduces themselves with the pronouns they, them, and every single athlete gets it and just does it and thinks it's awesome that that person had the courage to say, hey, my name is blank and my pronouns are they, them. Just the respect for people who are different than them is absolutely incredible. That's part of the reason why I love coaching so much. I love it so, so, so much because I love to be able to like make that such a positive experience for these young people, show them that being strong is good and using your body is good and being confident is great. And we have a space, we have a place for every single shape, size and ability, no matter what. I really like spending time around them. And honestly, they respect and get my pronouns so much better than most adults that I meet. Straight up, they're, they're just like little sponges. I've had little kids walk up to me and go, are you a boy or a girl? I'll look at them and go, neither. And they're like, okay, cool. Do you want to play? And I'm like, no, but <laughs> thank you for just respecting my being and, you know, validating that when I tell you who I am, you respect that and you believe me. I like to inspire them, but they inspire me because they're freaking rock stars, honestly. All in all, the kids are all right. Thanks again for tuning in. If I can leave you with anything from this episode, it would be to continue to navigate this world with an open and curious mind. And to please visit the Truth and Reconciliation Commission website to read the calls to action. If you live in Canada, you live in a society filled with Indigenous genocide and current day atrocities. Do the allyship work and listen to and amplify Indigenous voices. They need the rest of us to fight too. Okay, we'll see you next time.